Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. We have our first crypto guest this week, Piers Ridyard, CEO of RDX Works. RDX Works are striving to give developers everything they need to decentralize the $360 trillion global financial system. Piers is a non-founder CEO who joined RDX early in their life in 2017. His daughter was born a few years after, and he's been riding the wave as a crypto startup dad ever since. We discussed the ocean mental model for staying focused through a hype cycle, the importance of honoring your commitments as a CEO and a dad, the weight of your words, and the power of separating your ideas from yourself. This was an unusually geeky and intellectual one, but I really enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at StartupDadsPod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santarasanan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. Let's talk a little bit about the time in your life when you went from, I suppose, CEO RDX Works to CEO RDX Works and dad. You tell us a little bit about that. So that's an interesting journey. The thing about having kids is that you sort of don't mind that your priorities have shifted because you have this thing in your life that is so dependent on you and is such a undertaking that you and your partner have, in our case, had discussed extensively. But you're not prepared for like how it makes you just perceive how you should structure your day differently. And like what I found in being a CEO of a company is often most of your productivity actually happens outside of the day. You'll get up early and you'll be able to like bang off a few emails and then everyone else is in office and you'll be like in meetings for most of the day. And then you'll probably do most of your follow-ups and your write-ups and the things that you had to do like after hours. And having a kid completely changes that because you can't, you can't just work all hours that God sends and then you go to bed and wake up and rinse and repeat. You've got this extra person who is reliant on you or two people in this case who are reliant on you, which is your partner as well. Obviously, they want you to be there, not just because they need your help, but because it's a partnership in which the whole point was to enjoy being together and doing it. It's not just a question of like, oh, you look after her for two hours and then I'll do something and then you look after her for two hours and I can do something. It's much more of like, what do we want to do together to experience this thing of parenthood? That was a difficult adjustment because it just made me realize how much more focused I had to be on what I was spending my time on. And I think that's also part of growing a business as well is more delegation, more building out that layer of people that you can actually give objectives to, that you can trust to sort of like run with things and build teams around themselves and stuff like that. Having children definitely sharpened the need for me to get serious about how I did that for sure. I think it's a perpetual evolving experiment, optimizing the structure and cadence of thought, thinking and acting. And having children, one of the challenges I found hardest actually is, as Evie's been growing, 
her routine is incredibly evolving at a rapid, rapid rate. And the key thing that you need to do as a dad is adapt first and foremost to them. Like, I can hardly go, sorry, sweetheart, can you just wait? Like, I've got to really work on this, you know, I've got to answer these RFP questions or right. something like that. I'm doing my best to never say that statement ever again. <laughs> but occasionally one of those bombs trickles into my room. The solution is always changing, right? Yeah, I mean, I do think that being a father is and being a CEO have some overlap, like, <laughs> and that is in no way being patronizing to the people who work <laughs> in my team, right? I see my job as a CEO as a combination of like being there when my team needs me to be, right? So not being so busy that I can't actually provide support for whatever it is. Right? It could be a personal issue. It could be a problem. It could be the only I can sign off on something because it's, you know, legally important for the company or, or, or something like that. Availability is such an important aspect of it. And doing what you promise. Because for kids, that is everything. It's almost the nature of the bargain that you have with children is they only understand how the world works as a result of how you project yourself into the world. And even as simple as if you do this, I'll do that. You know, if you go and brush your teeth, I will read you this book. And then actually following through in a way that is enjoyable for them. And I think that being a CEO is a lot of it is just down to high integrity commitments that you're constantly making and then you're constantly having to make sure you see through. And that's what keeps the team together. But that's also part of what makes a child able to feel like they can function in a world that doesn't change on them. Like they're starting to understand the rules of the world and that even if they can't be happy right now. They can't get the thing they want right now. They understand that there is a set of rules that can occur that means that they can get the thing that they want as long as the lines are drawn clearly. But you have to be consistent in how you do that. And so, you know, I find that me and my daughter, sometimes you have to show that you will enforce a rule. But if you show that you will enforce a rule, like, you know, you have to sit for the entire time during dinner or you you have to eat everything on your plate or whatever it happens to be, the more consistent you are, the more happy over the majority of the time that they seem to be. At least that's my experience. Yeah. Evie's just getting to the age now where the kind of teaching her these things is really important. And the phrase that comes to mind, which is something is codified in lots of HX's principles, is honoring your commitments. And it's just so important. It's funny, as you said that, I think very clearly about the same thing with my daughter. Where I'm, we have this one more time and finished. From the moment we did that, I was like, it's so important that she understands that one more time means one. And now, unfortunately, she's learning to count. And therefore, it's like two more times and finished. And three more times. I'm like, no, no, that's not the rule. The rule isn't seven more times and finished. <laughs> but the point of that causality is very powerful. And you're really right. That's a really strong analogy. Because creating mechanisms by which if this, then that in your business is also an incredibly powerful way of incentivizing and helping the system that is your company drive great behaviors that end up in where you want to go. And that's a very powerful analogy. Right. And you have to be willing to not always be positive, right? Like there has to be times where with your children, you have to be prepared that they will cry about a thing. And again, like I'm sounding incredibly paternalistic about how I run my team and that's not at all how I run it. But like, 
you have to be prepared to deliver bad news and you have to be prepared to be consistent in how you message things. I mean, I don't have two children, but I have seen this. Like children, and I think humans in general, have an incredibly keen sense of injustice, right? So if one thing is done for one person and not done for another or not done equally. And I think that persists through to adulthood. Like we can rationalize it as adults, but it still doesn't stop it wrangling and it still doesn't stop it being a cause of like unhappiness. And I think that those things like are consistent in how you have to deliver organizations and how you have to deliver teams that are able to the majority of the time be happy and understand that if there is a period of time that unhappiness is going to occur, that at least that unhappiness is going to be consistent in you say what you're going to do and you do it and you follow through with it. It's really interesting. It's a really topical conversation for me because our business is going through quite a lot of change as we've grown. There's a famous rule in engineering, the two pizza rule, right? Where your team grows beyond the size of 10 people or whatever it is, which always made me smile because the idea of 10 people eating two pizzas is definitely not something I can relate to personally because that would be not enough pizza to go Because you don't live but, in America. That's the Jeff Bezos rule, right? The two pizza yeah. rule. Uh, two American pizzas. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, indeed. Good point. But, you know, one of the things is going through change and trying to uh, create a culture where I actually feel uncomfortable here because it's different from what it was before. And what I'm trying to do is to get the team to go, this is actually a sign that we're trying to make a change. And we know that the end state needs to be different. And if we all agree on that, then part of the implicit agreement is that the causality is going to make us a little bit uncomfortable or stressed or sad and trying to kind of create that link. Because like you say, I think injustice is one part of it, but we definitely have a sensitivity to things being not what we want, right? Uh, it's a really interesting point. Yeah. The thing you were saying before about, you know, one more time, I have this saying internally, as in between me and my wife, we talk about this concept of words having weight. Words have weight. And the more that you can instill the idea of words having weight, the more I think you can instill the idea of integrity. And I think the idea of integrity, again, that just crosses so many different areas of life. But it's wonderful to see how my daughter's now coming up to three and a half and how the skill with language is getting to the point that they're starting to experiment with the limits of like what a sentence means and then explore what the limits of that boundary actually means, right? It's like, oh no, you can't have dessert now. Okay, can I have a banana? And it's like, is a banana a dessert or is it like outside yeah. of the limits of like that category? And it's, and it's fascinating to watch. You're the first crypto person we've had on the show. And I think the intersection of geekness between mathematics, computer science, uh, statistics, and all of those things has made crypto fascinating to me. It's not a domain I've had the chance to explore as much as I'd like. But one of the things that I have seen is it broadly goes through a self-similar hype cycle and the machine keeps growing and gathering momentum. But one of the things I often think about is what it must be like to be the CEO of a business that's premised on this world-changing thing where the noise that goes around you could make it very difficult to stay focused or stay motivated. And that's my perspective. So I wanted to ask you, how have you found staying focused through the evolution of the crypto world in the last five years? 
It's difficult. It's very difficult. Like community is such a large part of what makes crypto work. The degree to which you are visible on Twitter or the degree to which you are like able to at least be having a pulse on what's happening in the community. I talk a lot less in like our Telegram channels and our Discord channels than I used to, but I still check them every day and I still like check in to see how the conversations are going. And we've got I think something like 140,000 people who follow us on Twitter and 20,000 people in Telegram with a large proportion of them online every day and talking every day. A thousand messages plus is not uncommon to sort of wake up to and similar sort of level of discussions that happen on things like Discord. People see a microcosm of this in Slack, right? Like as your team grows, more Slack messages happen, more channels happen, and it gets to the point where you just can't be reading everything. You just can't know what is happening in all of the channels. And crypto is like that writ large. Like there are people who have specialist interests in the different aspects of your project and conversations that are going on between the community and your team members. You do get this constant flow of questions and information that is really hard. It's really hard to stay focused, to find time, to find moments of peace, mental tranquility. Because like, it's not just a question of having the time. It's a question of having the time without your mind just wanting to itch to open up CoinGecko to see what the price is or to open up Telegram to see what the latest response has been to sort of a piece of content or news that have been put out. I feel like I've developed this sort of set of, started with a set of fundamental skills, which are based on an understanding of the principles that underpin the technology and the space and the application and the space that we focus on, which is decentralized finance. Which once you've gone deep enough to have the principles, you have a filter in which you can apply to the noise, right? Is this something I should care about? Is this something I should focus on? Is this something that matters from a principles-based approach to the space? And a lot of the noise, the answer is no. So you can sort of just let that stuff flow past you. And then there's this sort of like approach to trying to compartmentalize, build a great team. A lot of it does come back to building a great team. We're fortunate enough now that we're like 60 plus people, plus a load of volunteers and people who work directly in the community to help with sort of community moderation, to help with community facilitation, all that kind of stuff. So it's now got a lot less stressful than it was when it was like 12 people. And I was spending probably 50 to 60% of my time in community discussions directly. But you still have to play both sides of it. You have to be able to listen to the music at the same time as skating to where the puck is heading. And how I often describe this is crypto is like an ocean. The top, there's a lot of noise and a lot of froth. And sometimes it's not calm and there's all of the stuff. But then like right down deep, everything moves very, very slowly. And so the fundamental technology of crypto, because of the way you build permissionless, resilient, public, global, decentralized systems is carefully is the word that I would sort of most associate with it because, you know, these systems can never go down and they can never lose people money. They have to be built around this idea that the only ways in which they can lose people money is accepted bounds. Like if two thirds of the stake is controlled by a malicious actor or one third of the stake is controlled by a malicious actor. These things can happen on the network if this much mining power comes into the network, but otherwise no, right? So there shouldn't be any bugs in the system that can mean that 
something can accidentally happen. And it's not like you can just switch the database off and turn it back on again, or like go and manually edit some lines in it, because you can't apply the move fast and break things to the fundamental layer of the global financial system, because it just doesn't work like that. It's more like critical systems. You know, it's more like how you would design a a nuclear power station control system or a flight control system where you have this very low tolerance for error and bugs. So like you have this top layer where everyone wants to move incredibly quickly. News moves quickly. Hype cycles move quickly. Money moves incredibly quickly. People want constant information flow, constant things that they can get excited about. And then at the low level, you have this sort of very, very careful incremental movement of technology that in many ways you have almost like the opposite personality types that are necessary for both like where you have one side where the impetus is on the hype cycle and the other side where the impetus is on safety and guarantees around the security of the system it's a really interesting space to be in the thing i'd say about this sort of like cycle of hype and growing is absolutely necessary for the evolutionary process of crypto, like in exactly the same way as it was for the internet, exactly the same way as it was for computing. And you know, that famous Gartner like hype cycle that seems to happen at hyperspeed in crypto. You know, NFTs are going through it right now and tokens went through it in 2017. The fundamentals are often right. It's just that people get a little bit too excited about all of the potential possibilities and how fast those possibilities will emerge. Like my favorite thing is looking at all of the dot-com bubble companies. The majority of them were right. They were just too early. Like most of them were not stupid ideas. They were just ideas where their time definitely hadn't come. And I think that everything that we see in crypto, even some of the silly stuff where you're like, oh, that's never going to happen. Like, decentralized autonomous organizations were a thing that were being like really hyped about in 2015. And then the DAO hack happened and it kind of put DAOs on the back foot. This idea people are saying, oh, decentralized autonomous organizations may replace companies, may replace actually nation states or the way in which you govern nation states. Eventually that will come to pass. But I think that it's going to be decades, not like years. And I think a lot of people think it's going to be years. But the hype cycle is necessary to get the attention and brains into the space because it's like panning for gold, right? You have to pick up a load of mud and then you have to sift through it. But at the end of it, you may end up with some more gold and then you pick up a load more mud and you sift through it and then you end up with some more gold. So like, I think that's what you're seeing is each of those cycles returns not to the previous place, but the previous place plus the actual value add that was worked out in the previous cycle to then build on to the next cycle. Yeah. I love your analogy about the ocean. I think it's a very powerful framework actually to think about where you're looking. If you were in CEO mode up top, it's going to be very frothy. You've got a different sort of vessel to navigate. Right that layer then at the very bottom when like you say you don't move fast and break things when you're trying to build a trunk line system like the one you're trying to build right that's a very powerful mental model actually because one of the things that i'm slowly learning to do and doesn't map in quite the same way but as hx has grown our business has grown i've had to consciously shift my threshold for what a critical event 
is, right? A P0, P1, P2, like the same thing that was a P0 event when we were five people. If I feel the same way now with the company being 20 times to 15 times the size, guess what? I have 15 times more stress (laughs) in my life and 15 times more overreaction and inability to actually think about which one of those events really is a critical thing. And it's a similar thing. It's which level am I operating at when I'm making decisions? Really interesting. I'm keen to ask you the big question that I like to ask every guest, which is what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your child? The biggest. It's always difficult to just pick one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, That ideas are separate from self. We have this mantra inside Radix, but it's inside RDX Works, and we try and push it out to the Radix community of like strong ideas weekly held. But when I say ideas are separate from self is that it's very easy to wrap up your definition of self-worth with the success or failure of ideas that have emanated from yourself or that you have invested in, right? And that in entrepreneurship, you are constantly trying to push new ideas into the world. And as a result of that, it can be a very difficult mentally experience that process of failure, failure of ideas, things that you've come up with or things that you've pushed forwards or championed or invested time, energy, emotion into. And the more that you can understand that your self-worth is not linked to the success or failure of your ideas, but that ideas are things that exist separate from self but can be worked on. They can be projects. They can be things that can be incredibly successful or they can fail, but you have to work out ways in which you become mentally tough around those aspects because the only true truth of entrepreneurship is everything changes. What is successful for your business today won't be successful for it tomorrow. What is successful product today will have huge numbers of competitors tomorrow and you have to rethink how you define what you do and being too wedded to ideas is the root cause of so many ways in which companies can fail. So I think that that's the biggest lesson I have that I am constantly learning myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really cool one. As you describe that, I think if you're a CEO, I often describe leadership at the organizational level anyway, being system building powerful systems that operate the best interests of the company that everyone's trying to build and having a framework where decoupling the idea from the person is an incredibly powerful way to let the best ideas win rather than necessarily the strongest opinions or the most opinionated people. That's a very hard thing to do as an organization scales. It's a very powerful, resilient framework for doing that. It's also a very important life lesson to help one stay malleable and amenable to learning new things, right? For me, one of the biggest differentials in success that I've seen is this combination of being curious, like a combination of curiosity and mental toughness. Curiosity is actually the opposite of arrogance. I know that seems weird to say, but you can't be arrogant and be curious Because if you're arrogant, then you believe you know better. And that is an opposite of curiosity, which is a being open to not 
knowing everything, are being open to wanting more information. If you're just open for information, then you often don't ever act. So that concept of mental toughness or strong ideas weekly held is important as well, because you have to, at some point, understand that everything to do with a business that you are starting is uncertain. What you have to do is create a set of hypotheses that you then act on with certainty on the idea that what you think might be right is actually right. And you make decisions based on that until other information presents itself that says, actually, you might be a little bit wrong here and you need to think about a change in direction. Yeah, it's very true. It's an amazing thing about how much leadership is thinking about these processes by which ideas and decisions are made and trying to work out where the perverse incentives or kind of slightly weird unintended consequences arise, isn't it? Yeah. Building systems and frameworks is exactly what the job of a CEO is. And then it gets to the point where it's building systems and frameworks for building systems and frameworks. So like organizing, organizing just feels like each level just becomes the next level of indirection. You can't know everything. So how do you get the right indicators of the correct direction of travel? And then how do you make sure that the organization is able to organize around these indicators? Whatever they happen to be, it could be something to do with retention. It could be something to do with you know, revenue. It could be something to do with new product delivery. There's so many different pieces of business information that are necessary, but the more larger the organization becomes, the more you have to think about organizing around organizing, more you have to think about what systems are in place to help us understand whether or not the entire ship is going in the right direction and does so in a way that's responsive even when you grow. And yeah, it's... Books and books have been written about this and will continue to be written to, about this <laughs> until have. we stop building companies. So. Indeed. That's it. And it's an endless runner, isn't it, the game? And you're right. Those meta systems, there's probably infinite layers of depth to that as well, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why I love books, because I just love the way in which you can get often an entire person's life experience to date condensed into... 300 to 500 pages of words, you know, that feels like an amazing investment of time. And the thing that I increasingly like look for in these books is frameworks for thinking. It's like each person has got like several of these frameworks in the book, either explicitly laid out or implicitly in like just how they think about breaking down problems into segments and then working out how those segments can be worked on in each and also like validation of thinking. And I think it's organizational frameworks as part of it, but then like frameworks for thinking and then getting your organization to buy into those frameworks for thinking as well, which helps you then provide sets of principles for how people can build things without necessarily constantly needing your input. And it's just, yeah, the, the meta layers that are possible in all of those directions is unbelievable. And I just feel like every time I think I've like got a system in place, I'm like, oh no, there's another meta system here going on. It's just like, oh God. <laughs> I've never asked this on the show, but I'm going to just shoot from the hip and say, what's the last great book that comes to mind that you've read that you'd recommend to readers in that vein? So there's been two books I've read recently. I try and go between uh, fiction and nonfiction, right? So one fiction, one nonfiction. The last nonfiction book I read is a book called Play Bigger. And it's a book about category design. So its basic premise is 
People don't think in products. They think in categories and then products. They don't go, oh, I'm going to put my Nikes on. You go, oh, I want to go running. I need my running shoes. I'll go put my Nikes on, right? And so being able to name the category that your business operates in and ideally being able to dominate that category by being able to accurately name the category and then associate your brand with that category in the minds of the consumers, like so Uber for lift hailing, Google for search, Nike for sports equipment, and all of this stuff, etc. That was a really interesting book. And the reason I like it is because it's actually not a very theoretical book. It's just a basically a bunch of people who have built a bunch of companies and they haven't built like really robust thought frameworks around it. But I just like the practical way in which they approach all of these things. And it was an interesting read. And then the other book that I read recently is Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, which is a wonderful title. Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations is basically the story of this guy who had like a mental breakdown at 20, 22 or 23 and did uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and made a good recovery after cognitive behavioral therapy and then started to get interested in what the basis for cognitive behavioral therapy was and found that like a lot of it was actually based on a bunch of ancient philosophical ideas from like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and uh, not the sophists. I'm trying to remember what the other ones were. The guys who just basically believed that life was something to be endured and that every time a struggle came along, it was like being presented with a good wrestling partner and that pain and suffering was a way in which you built mental toughness in the same way that you build muscles when you go and work out Um the name escapes me. Anyway, fascinating book about the importance of mental toughness, the way in which your brain can get into patterns that make you perceive your life to be more negative than it is, or the way in which you can introduce patterns into your thinking that help you rationalize what's happening in your life at any given level. I found the book fascinating. I'm not sure if it's going to make me change too much of my behavior, but it made me think more about the concept of mental toughness. Obviously, I've been talking about that earlier in the interview, but it's such a critically important human trait to have. But what the book really emphasized was how it's actually something you just have to constantly practice as well. It's not just something you just acquire and then you're mentally tough. So yeah. Well, that's awesome. Uh, those are two that I'm going to buy in about five minutes' time. Somehow I got reasonably obsessed recently with the idea of the non-player character inside every human being, right? <laughs> and about how, you know, that most human beings, their base urges drive what they do much more than they realize. And thinking a little bit about how you respond when hard situations come along and how preventing your base urges from possibly taking you down a, a suboptimal response to that is something that I'm super interested in. I thought you were going to go the other way and talk about the fact that we're all in a simulation and that uh, <laughs> actually everyone else is an NPC and you're the only conscious being in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Look, Piers, we like to close the show with our regular feature, Startup Shoutouts. We shine a light on a startup person, founder, anyone in the startup ecosystem that we admire. Startup Shoutouts. So who's your startup shout out today, Piers? Yeah, so my startup shout out, I think he's been a previous guest of yours, um, Josh with Mindstone. This concept of education being a key unlocker of our potential as humans is something that I have subscribed to for a very long time, but it does feel like the whole process of learning still has like 
a long way to go because we have these sets of ways in which we learn as people. And, you know, people have tried flashcards and speed reading and like all of these different fads that have come along. But what Josh is doing with Mindstone is trying to build a set of technologies that just help the way in which we learn based on research and understanding in the way in which we learn, create a set of technologies that help us do that better building a system on top of it that allows you to do learning pathways and stuff like this that can also build on the fact that everyone has got something inside of them that they can teach other people. So how do you create a system of ways in which people can provide this content about something they're passionate about that can help other people learn that as well? And I think it's a really ambitious project, but I really love it. So that's my shout out. That's super cool. And yeah, he was an amazing guest, incredibly humble and didn't even for a moment spend any time giving his business a shout out. So thoroughly well-deserved and I'm glad we're giving him a bit of a bump because as someone who's been playing with Mindstone recently, I'm a big fan too. Well, Piers, look, thank you so much for coming on the show. A really different one. So I'm looking forward to getting this one out for our listeners. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to listening to it back and grimacing about all of the stupid things I said during it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at StartupDadsPod. 